So it is imperative that you get yourself, your relationship with food, your relationship with your body and your weight in a beautiful, healthy spot. And that is going to be the greatest gift that you give to your children. I guarantee it. Hello, today on the podcast, we have Dr. Julie Tiane again. But for those of you who do not know you, Dr. Julie, first of all, welcome. How are you doing today? Lindsay, I am doing absolutely fantastic. I love that I have been welcomed back to your show. Thank you so much for everything that you're doing to help people, and thank you for inviting me back. Of course. I knew the first time we spoke that we would have a lot more to say, and I'm so thankful for the privilege to get to continue this conversation with you. Tell me a little bit about you for those, like I said, that didn't get to watch that first podcast. You bet. Well, I am a licensed um, clinical psychologist with a crazy heart to both treat and prevent eating disorders. I have worked with eating disorders for almost the past 30 years, and I love helping people really reclaim themselves from the prison of disordered eating and formal eating disorders. Um, when I started way back when, around 1990, there was this horrible myth that said that if you have an eating disorder, you are destined to struggle for the rest of your life. And I set about to really prove that wrong. And I'm happy to say that it has been being proved wrong, not only by myself, but by lots of other clinicians um, ever since. We know that eating disorders can absolutely be 100% treated. And it's been my, my, really my heart and my passion ever since to not only treat them, but to educate um, you know, the world regarding how best to get over an eating disorder and really how to steer clear of an eating disorder, especially if you are a parent for the next generation of kids. Yes, absolutely. Which leads us perfectly into something I wanted to talk to you about today was you have a ton of amazing resources out online, out in your circle of hope, which we absolutely will dive into. Um, but in those resources, I remember one video you said, You've never worked with someone who has disordered eating that has a healthy sense of self-worth. And uh -huh. I thought that was really profound because um, we link food to our weight and weight to our value. When people say like, oh, I have a food issue, if food was not linked to our weight, would we still be talking about this? It's interesting because that's one of the points that I really wanted to emphasize today. You know, too many times in our culture and certainly within an eating disorder, self-worth is based on body image, you know, and, and it shouldn't be. Our self-worth should be based on many, many internal traits, not the size of our body, not what we look like on the outside. And this is something that's starting when kids are really young, parents can work to cultivate. We need to develop a core self-identity and self-worth that's based on who you are as a remarkable person on the inside and not what your body shape or size looks like on the outside. So that's really one of the most imperative things that parents can do is create self-worth and self-esteem around the self, 
mm. not around the body. Yes. Most of the clients that I'm working with right now are either new mothers or mothers of up to six. And I know that sometimes in the back of their mind, they're wondering, hey, how can I make sure that my daughter, that my son doesn't struggle with the same things that I'm struggling with? Because in our first talks, we find out that a lot of these core beliefs that we have about ourselves really start with the way that our parents spoke to us or the way that there were events in our lives that have shaped the way that we think about ourselves. So if we are always influencing someone, how are we and how can we start influencing the younger generation differently than we have been ourselves? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful question. I'm going to back up a little bit if I can, because I think that um, there's some, some pieces that are important for, uh, especially if you've struggled with an eating disorder yourself, I think that there's really some important research that's pretty solid now for people to know. Um, and it's going to sound a little bit daunting at the beginning, but I, I promise you we're going to go to a place of hope and absolute empowerment with what you can do. So the first thing is that we do know that, that eating disorders are very genetic. They are very biologically based. And I can tell you that when I started out my career 30 years ago, I poo-pooed that. I thought that eating disorders were just handed down by the family culture or by our socioculture. And I've really been humbled because we now know that there's a 56% heritability with anorexia. So that means that there is a 56% genetic loading factor, okay, that predisposes your offspring to possibly struggle with an eating disorder and specifically anorexia. And that's huge. We've also been able to find specific chromosomes that there's markers for anorexia. It's, it's specifically chromosome 12. So if you have a child that has an eating disorder and you have had an eating disorder yourself, the first thing is I say, please don't blame yourself because there was definitely a predisposition. But if you are a new mother or a new father and you've had an eating disorder yourself, please know that genetics are only part of the equation. You know, I kind of like to say it's like a metaphorical gun, you know, like genetics have loaded it, but your interaction with your child and your interaction with yourself is going to be what determines if that trigger gets pulled or not. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'd like to focus on today. Yeah. So you are saying that this is something that can be 56% can be inherited and isn't just fully something that we learn ourselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you have had an eating disorder, you have a 10 times greater chance of having a child that has an eating disorder. Okay. Wow. Yeah. 10 times, 10 times based on genetics. Wow. And this is crazy too, because especially with, um, I mean, from the fifties till now, there was Adkins, there was Weight Watchers, there is so many, the low fat diet, there was the grapefruit diet, so many diets that our grandma 
mom, and now we are inheriting. I had always imagined that as something we just saw our mom doing, and then we kind of walked in that as well. But mm -hmm. it's very interesting to note that that actually changes biological structure. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's, let's talk then about, you know, what parents can do. Yes. And, and I'm saying parents because it's both, you know, mom and dad and mom or dad can maybe struggle with disordered eating. I mean, we know that eating disorders affect boys too, whether it's, you know, a dad that struggled or whether you have a son, we know that um, about 10% of the cases are boys. So we really have to include them in our discussion. Yes. And, and what we want to do, um, I mean, let's start out by, I mean, dieting. I mean, dieting is probably, well, besides genetics, I would say that dieting is one of the biggest bullets mm -hmm. that affect whether or not you are going to struggle with an eating disorder. We know that about 25% of the people, regardless of genetics, who chronically diet are at great risk for developing an eating disorder. Mm. Okay, 25%. And think about the prevalence of dieting in our culture. Yeah. So if you couple that with, and this makes me cringe, but kids being put on diets at ever younger ages, okay? Mm -hmm. Both by parents and then unfortunately by horrific campaigns like a major dieting campaign that I won't name, but I think we probably all know who I'm talking about, that incentivized adolescents to sign up for free to get them hooked on dieting, right? So dieting, we know, predisposes everybody, regardless of your genetics, to disordered eating, anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder. Okay, and I think we talked about this last time, but if you are an adolescent girl and you diet, you're actually at 224% greater risk of developing obesity as an adult, okay, mm -hmm. than, than adolescents that don't diet. Because, because dieting creates disordered eating. So I, if, if there's any parent out there that can just hear this, please, regardless of your child's weight status, do not um, intervene with any kind of dieting. It will, it will backfire all the time. It will create a horrible cycle of disordered eating that will not benefit your child. Absolutely. There's... Um... There's a Duke study that I found very interesting, and Philip Costanza, he headed this up, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, but he noted that children who are restricted food in an attempt to lose weight become preoccupied with food and will always eat more than those who are not restricted. Yes. And it's that same idea that these previously starved rats will not eat normal amounts of food, even when they're no longer in a famine state. Right, absolutely. You know, if we look at, you know, people who have had type one diabetes, if we look at uh, kids that are restricted with PKU, right, mm -hmm. with no kind of genetics regarding um, eating disorders, they are at risk, greater risk, much greater risk of developing an eating disorder because of restrictive 
diets. Okay. So even if it's not for weight loss, we know that the consequence of that is that people are going to overdo it. It's, it's an organic natural consequence of being restricted. Mm-hmm. So what I tell young parents or parents of, of young kids is from a very early age, we want to teach our children to be intuitive eaters. Mm-hmm. And, and what are intuitive eaters? We, we teach our kids that there's no good food or bad food. All food is, is fine. They just have different purposes. You know, foods that have protein are for our muscles and, you know, foods that have calcium are for our bones, right? If we want energy, we're going to reach for carbohydrates, but that there's no good food, bad food restriction. Mm -hmm. And we're going to teach them to eat in response to physical cues of hunger, Mm -hmm. okay? I remember um, so many times when my kids were little and, and, you know, we would talk so much about, you know, is your tummy hungry that they just really anchored into their physical cues of hunger and fullness. And we would, you know, talk about, um, you know, kind of stopping, like, let's say they weren't done with their plate. They said, I'm, I'm done. My stomach is happy full, you know? So they learned really early on that, the measure of how much they should be eating is based on their own physicality, not some external, you know, plate or, you know, back in the day food pyramid or portion control size, but your own internal signals is always going to steer you in the right direction. So we, so we want to teach our kids that from a really young age, you know, if it's 10 o'clock in the morning and they had breakfast at 8.30 and they say, mom, can I have a snack? It's like, well, are you hungry? Yes. Okay, no problem. Yeah. Right? Conversely, you know, it's, you know, sometimes I, I remember, um, again, just kind of reflecting because these are all principles that I really worked on with, with my kids. You know, I, I would love, you know, kind of like after a dinner, I mean, we have dessert pretty much every single day. And, um, you know, I loved when my kids would sometimes say, you know, no, I'm going to skip dessert. I'm full. <laughs> and, and I'm not emphasizing that because they skip dessert. I'm emphasizing that because they, they cued into their stomach as what was if they were going to eat it or not. And oftentimes then at eight o'clock at night, they would go and they have, would have that dessert because that's when they were physically hungry for it. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And especially if dessert was something that was allowed to incite guilt and shame for them or something that they were always told they had to restrict, if they were thinking in the back of their mind, oh, mom's not going to let us have this um, at all for the next week, why would they have a normal amount of it now? Right. That scarcity mentality is literally giving permission to this eating till overabundance and eating past physically full because you're not eating to fill hunger. You're eating because you're afraid that you won't let yourself have this again. Absolutely. So we want to make all foods readily available, you Mm -hmm. know? So if they want a snack, you know, you want to have, you know, cookies and an apple, you know, you want to have cut up cantaloupe and sometimes, you know, Doritos. Mm -hmm. So, So that they get the sense that there's not you know, a good food, bad food. It's not when the Doritos are out, we have to eat it whether we're hungry for it or not, or eat it beyond being physically happy full, because we know that we only get Doritos once a month, 
you want to always have all of those foods readily available, again, including the fruits and vegetables, because we want to model, you know, an enjoyment of all foods. And, and if you do that, you will see that your children enjoy the dessert, but they're going to also enjoy fruit as well. And they're not going to have that emotional charge um, attached to one or the other because they have not, no, no food has been taboo. If a food is not taboo and they truly just eat what they feel hungry for. Yeah. Oh, I love this so much. Um, and the <laughs> is a lot. So I'm Italian um, and I grew up. As am I. <laughs> yes. And I grew up in, the, especially with like my grandparents, it was you clean your plate and <laughs> Also, regardless of if you wanted that much food or not. And also, you better come back for seconds because otherwise I'm offended. So, you don't love me if you yes. don't have more food. Yes. So Absolutely. what would you say when that cultural bias is kind of introduced into this situation of your Italian grandmother who spent the last three and a half days on this pasta sauce that wants you to have seconds or thirds when you're actually pretty content with half or a full plate or however much you need in order to find physical fulfillment. Um, what would you say to that scenario? I would say, grandma, I love this lasagna so much. I am full, but I'm going to put this aside and I'm going to have it tomorrow for lunch. Oh, that's a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're eating her food, you're enjoying her food, you're tasting her food, you're savoring her food. And then you're going to say, I'm going to have more, but I'm going to have it next time I'm hungry because I'm not going to enjoy it anymore if I eat anymore because it's, it's not going to taste good anymore after you're beyond that point of happy full. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, that was a very good answer. I think even my own grandmother would have appreciated that. Um, <laughs> one of the things that goes wrong when we constantly tell our children, hey, you can't eat that or you have to eat at this time or um, these foods are not allowed or these foods are, we are almost teaching them that they cannot trust their own bodies. And that's something that I actually hear from clients a lot is this notion that, oh, I can't trust my own body. If I, if I trusted my own body or if I started to listen to my own body, it, like, it's almost as if their body is the enemy. So what are some ways that we can teach from a young age and also reteach ourselves because someone listening right now, that might be the place to start right now. It, it, it is the place to start. What I tell my, my clients is that the most loving thing you can do for your child, especially when they are like, Dr. Julie, I do not want to hand this down to my child. What I say very, very authentically is then work on getting healthy yourself because guess what? Your kids are going to watch everything that you do, everything. Mm. So regardless, I have goosebumps as I'm saying this, Lindsay, regardless of what you might tell your kids, you can hear all this great information that we are saying today, and you can convey this to your children. But if you are not following that yourself, if you are not eating the potato with butter, you know, if you are not eating that dessert at the end of the meal that you really want, okay, 
your kids are going to see that. Yeah. And that's what they're going to mimic. Mm -hmm. So it is imperative that you get yourself, your relationship with food, your relationship with your body and your weight in a beautiful, healthy spot. And that is going to be the greatest gift that you give to your children. I guarantee it. Yeah, that's so true. Um, if we think about the things that, so this internal dialogue, when we talked in the beginning about self-worth, this internal dialogue that we say to ourselves, sometimes I'll ask clients like, imagine someone saying that to your daughter. Imagine someone saying the things that you so readily say to yourself daily to your best friend. Or even imagine someone else outside of yourself saying it to you. How horrific would it be and traumatic would it be? Yet the things that we're saying to ourselves are so tangibly the things that are causing our decisions. Every decision we make is formed by those, that internal dialogue that we're having. And so even though we might not be tangibly saying those things to our children and to the people that we're influencing around us, our actions are showing that we believe these things about ourselves. And our actions are encouraging the people around us to also believe those things about themselves. And sometimes the parents actually are saying that to themselves with little eyes and ears watching mm -hmm. and you know really especially a mother is a child's first lens of their body self okay mm -hmm. they, they they learn how to see their body by watching how their mom sees their own body mm -hmm. so if you are looking in the mirror and you are grimacing and you are touching parts of your body in disdain and making comments or not, just letting your, your body language speak for you, your young child is watching that. Yeah. They are going to start to experience their own body with that same level of, of critique. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because the question then becomes, should I not like my body? Or, or they just naturally look out and they say, oh my gosh, my tummy, you know, my, my tummy, because you, you know, my tummy looks kind of big. And instead of saying, hey, look at my tummy, and isn't my tummy great and dancing around like little kids do and should do, they're going to grimace just like mom grimaced. Mm. Okay. They're going to start, you know, kind of touching their thighs or looking sideways in the mirror the way they saw mom or dad do. Yeah. And this is actually reflecting in earlier ages, correct? So can you talk a little bit about um, some of the changes in the ages that we're starting to see these behaviors? We, it's heartbreaking. I will tell you at A New Beginning, my treatment center in Scottsdale, Arizona, we, we get calls too many times for kids as young as six years old, seven, oh, eight is a very frequent number or age that, that parents bring in their children. And we see this in the research. There's definitely the landscape of eating disorders is absolutely changing with an increased um, amount of younger and younger kids developing eating disorders. We uh, know that in the past, it used to be average age of onset was 13 to 17 years of age. 
Now it is nine to 13 years of age. Wow. Okay, nine. That's, that's third grade. Oh, that's actually so heartbreaking. It, it is. It's horrific. It is absolutely horrific. And, and the other thing that, that, that people do need to know is especially in these young populations, there's actually a higher prevalence of boys to girls. So let me, well, like, actually, let me, let me, let me miss, or let me restate that because that's not quite true. In adults, we see a 10 to 1 ratio female to male. Okay, so that's in adults, okay, 10 females to one male. That's 10% that I cited earlier. In young children, it's six female, okay, to one male. So there's a higher proportion of boys in um, clients or our kids that have eating disorders. Wow. I want pediatricians to know that because I think too many times physicians it's just not on their radar. Yeah. So if there's a, a young boy and they are failing to, you know, make expected growth um, curves, you know, I, I really want them to, to know that, you know, young boys get eating disorders too. So we have to be on the lookout for those. Yes. And it's always interested me that this doesn't seem to be as pressing of a case with, in general, and this is a very generalized statement, but it doesn't seem to be as big of an issue with males as it is in females. So why are boys and men not struggling with this issue as much as females are? Like, what are we teaching women that the men are not hearing? Um, I think absolutely hands down, it has to do with our historical um, cultural focus on the value system that we put on women and that is appearance and and then weight so i think that the more you know regardless of gender the more we are are putting value on appearance and weight the more people are going to go down that route if they don't have self-worth or self-identity in any other area and boys you know, I think we've seen an increase in boys and men over the past couple of decades because it's crossed over genders. But I think that still, by and large, and this pains me to say this as a female, and it pains me to say this with two daughters, our, our, our culture still ultimately values a woman for what she looks like. Yes. And, and I hate saying that. I mean, it makes me almost nauseous to say that, but it's true. So I think that that's where that differentiation is. And I think the more things start to kind of blur and the more, you know, boys and men become victim to this same horrific um, pressure to look a certain way or to have your body fit a certain image, you know, they're going to get more and more eating disordered. And we are seeing that. And I, I, I do believe that, that the numbers are much higher than 10%. Uh, for boys and men who have eating disorders. I think that, you know, that's what the research shows. But I think that there, first of all, there's so much shame in coming forward with an eating disorder anyways. But yeah. I think there's even more so for boys and men because they say, wait a minute, you know, this is a girl's, you know, quote unquote issue. And then what does that mean about me that I'm struggling with this behavior? And I think that they are 
much less um, readily uh, apt to come forward, which I think is a real shame because I think they, they suffer in silence. And I think that that's why um, their numbers are probably underrepresented. Um, yes. I actually very much agree with that because even talking to male clients, the way that female clients speak about this issue is very willing to listen, very willing to be a little bit more vulnerable sometimes. And men, it's almost more something that they want to joke about because it's like a shame. It, it causes shame. It, it shows shame. Um, and it's something that they almost want to like look away from them. Okay, just tell me what to eat. Um, right. yeah. but I love what you said about, there is just this stigma of women. Hey, this is what you can look like. And I think for men from a young age, what is being preached is, Hey, here's what you can do. Here's what you can become. Here's how you can become successful and you have to be strong. And for women, what's communicated is like, Hey, here's how you can look. And if you or, look, you, or you should look. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a, that's a lot of the marketing that you see for anything that's geared towards women. It's, hey, you can look this way or right. you should look this way. And um, yeah. how do we start to rewrite that narrative? Right. That's exactly where I was just going to go with this because we can. And it's, you know, there's a lot of movement that's going on in the culture and we can spend some time on that. But I think... I think what makes parents especially feel most empowered is knowing that, you know, even if the culture is crazy around us and it is, you can have an impact within your family system. Mm. You can help to cultivate within your children, you know, an other than value system, you know, other than based on looks and appearance and weight. You know, you can help your child to know, hey, who you are as a person, your integrity, your values, if you're a good friend, you know, your intelligence or, you know, your um, resilience, you know, your kindness. These are all things that we can reflect to our children when they're very young because really parents are the first mirror for their children. What we reflect to them and what we put to words, how we label these traits in our children is what they are going to internalize. And that's going to be the basis of their own self-identity. So if we say, you're so funny, you just make me smile, or you're so kind, your heart is just so tender, or I love what you did to support that friend. You are an amazing individual. Mm -hmm. This is what they take in. This is what's important to them. Yeah. And that will withstand then when they go to school and then they are with peers or with a crazy culture because that core foundation and then, of course, what you are hopefully modeling at home. You're saying the same thing about yourself. You know, you are not valuing yourself based on how much you weigh or what you look like. You are complimenting yourself on things that you feel proud of, not in a bragging way, but in a self-confident way. Yeah. That's what your kids are going to have as their core foundation. And that is a very eating disordered resistant core that yeah. we have complete influence over. 
one child at a time. I am smiling from ear to ear right now because I just think about the impact that could be made if everyone stopped thinking about this huge um, global, I, I guess the word epidemic is not a choice word to be used right now in this day and age, <laughs> but um, this huge global epidemic of these body image issues and the culture shift that social media has taken on, that the conversations happening in our schools and um, on TV and everywhere we look, it can seem very overwhelming, like there's nothing we can do. But if everyone said, hey, what's in my control right now and just looked it to, the, to their home, yeah. Who am I responsible for? And by the way, you fall into that category. You're responsible for you as well as you're responsible for your children. Yeah. Um, and we're just starting to be more intentional with the way that you validate someone. Because I've said this before and I'll say this a million times till the day I die, but the way that you validate someone dictates the way that they will see value in themselves. So if I get to determine how you see value in yourself by the way that I'm complimenting you, I will not waste my breath and your time and your mental space complimenting your body, ever. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I really hope that someone who's listening right now took something away from that, started to look at the way that you're encouraging the people around you and starting to note the intelligence and the bravery and the courage and the kindness that they're seeing in the people around them, rather than just labeling someone as thin or fit or pretty or whatever we think we're building these people up, but really we're building up those insecurities. Yeah, even when, you know, what I, what I tell parents is don't comment on weight or body ever. You know, like, 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 don't. Because if you say, oh, you look thin, you look great, like you've lost weight, what you're doing is you're putting on your child's radar that their weight matters and that you notice. Mm, yeah. So, so even compliments, and I'm doing air quotes, <laughs> you know, are, are, are emphasizing, I'm noticing what you look like and I'm paying attention to it in a way that I'm assessing your value. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's no need for that. Yeah. You know, if, if you want to compliment on somebody's, you know, outer appearance, say, I love your smile. You know, it just is so filled with joy. I love your eyes. They are so kind or deep or thoughtful, you know, yeah. don't you, we don't need to make like, why are we referencing people's weights? Like that it should not even matter. Yeah. We have to take that off of our lens so that it's no longer on the next generation's lens when they look at themselves or they look out at the world. Yeah. I had a client the other day who was going to visit her aunt and she was freaking out. And I was asking her why, like, this is exciting. You're going to get to see family you haven't seen in a while. And she said, you don't understand. Every time I see my aunt, she comments on my weight and she'll let me know, hey, have you gained a little bit of weight? Or, oh my goodness, you look great. You lost so much weight. And she's like, I just hate 
I walk in front of her and understand that I am initially going to be analyzed and she is going to make her assessment. And even when that assessment is good of, oh, you lost weight, which again, air quotes on good. um, Even when that assessment in her mind is uplifting, what she's doing is building this fear of, oh, I don't want to lose that affirmation. Right. I don't, I don't want to lose that praise because what if, what if my weight fluctuates and what if I, and this, this client also wants to get pregnant. <laughs> what if I get pregnant and then my body starts to naturally put on some weight? Do I want to avoid my aunt because I don't want her mess- saying anything about my body? Like this is wild, but this happens. Well, I, I think it happens all the time. And, and it's, it's a shame. I mean, you know, people are hiding themselves because of what they look like. And, and that's a real shame. So I think, you know, you have to be aware of, of what you say to somebody. You have to be aware of what you say about other people in front of influential others. You mm-hmm. know, um, you, know you, you, you can't come home from a party and be driving home in the family car and be talking about Aunt Susie that looks so bad because they gained weight or, you know, what happened to, you know, Uncle Fred, you know, because, you know, he looks like he's, you know, really packing it in. You know, if you, if you make those kinds of comments and your children hear it, they're going to feel like when I go to that party, people are going to be watching what I'm eating and they're going to be watching what I'm doing. And, 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 and that's how the lens starts focusing on their body and weight in that, in that value and that self-worth. So, you know, we need to, number one, work on that value system within yourself if that's there. And, you know, if it is, that isn't surprising because our culture has been like that for decades. But we can rewrite that. We can look out at the world and see people as people and not, you know, what their physicality, you know, says about their value. Mm -hmm. And we need to be able to pass that on very, very sensitively and sensibly to the next generation so that this horrific crisis of disorder does not continue. And it is within our control. Yes. That is so beautiful. Yes, a million percent. Yes. Um, <laughs> there's, there's so much, so much that we can do, and uh, and that's why I love the work that you do, Lindsay, and and I appreciate the platform to be able to share some of these things that hopefully, hopefully, will change the life of some future kids, and maybe enlighten some people that are struggling within themselves regarding um, eating disorders and struggles with their body and weight. Yes. So I I would love to end with, I want to make sure you gave so many tangible takeaways. Um, I want to put them in a beautiful box for everyone who's listening right now so that they can have these takeaways all cohesive, all together. So let's create an environment here where, hey, this is a healthy environment. This is, these are some tangible habits some conversations, some things that you personally for your own family and you would encourage your clients to have in place in their own environment when it comes to building their own relationship with food in their bodies and also the children and the family around them. So I would say become an intuitive eater yourself. Mm. Okay. 
stop chronically dieting, learn to eat all foods in healthy moderation according to intuitive eating principles, and then teach your children the same thing. I would absolutely say learn to respect, embrace, and accept your body self. I would say love, but I would probably have a number of clients pounding on my door and saying, I'm not there yet, but I'm working on it. Um, but we need to learn how to really respect and embrace our body, whatever the size, shape, or, or status that it's in. It is possible, believe me. The more you develop a healthy relationship with your body that's truly authentically respectful, the more you're going to hand that down to your children. You have to be very, very careful what you say um, regarding weight and appearance. Okay, yeah. Really be careful with what you outwardly say and know that your children are always listening. And then give your kids the gift of a self-worth that is not based on appearance or weight. Yeah. Let them love themselves for their unique, inherent qualities that are true to themselves and let them adore themselves for those traits and know that you are the one that will gift them with that for how you treat them and the things that you say and what you mirror as a parent to them. Mm. Wow. Well, that was so well put i think that i could not say that better myself nor will i try so i want to leave people with that moment i want you to if you need to go back and re-listen to everything that dr julie just said because it was absolute gold um i do have one last thing that i want you to clear up sure you noted twice in this episode intuitive eating can yes. you say a brief definition of what that even means. Um, I'm going to be talking about that a lot more on this show. I talk about that with my clients, but can you give me a definition of what intuitive eating even is? So it, it is probably not a short definition. <laughs> maybe, maybe we can do this as another mutual podcast. And, I, and I'm, I, I'm really not, I mean, I'm saying that very, very authentically. Intuitive eating is at at one very simple and very difficult for people to truly understand. And I think it's because of all of the chronic dieting and like the, the, the core foundation of, of um, you know, just how they understand food and eating and, and, and cues. So it really is Again, it should be so simplistic in its beauty because it goes back to organic processes, but it's very difficult to understand. So, so I will, um, in a very short version, say that intuitive eating skills is ultimately being able to be connected to your physical cues of hunger and fullness hmm. and to eat according to physical cues of hunger and fullness as opposed to emotional cues, right? Because a lot of times we emotionally eat. A lot of times we eat 
according to external things like diet plans. We eat according to external things like what time of day is it. We eat even with portion control, quote unquote. These are all externally based measures of what we're supposed to be eating. And it takes us away from the wisdom of our body signals. So eating for physical cues of hunger and fullness, we want to eat all foods in healthy moderation. So that means that a piece of cheesecake is just as fine to eat as an apple, is Doritos, is grapes, okay? There, there's no differentiation between good food or bad food, okay? That doesn't mean that we eat non-nutritious food all the time, okay? And that's where we go into a lot of different nuances. You know, we want to be able to be kind to our body and give our body proper nutrition, but that doesn't mean that there's not times we can't eat chips or mint chocolate chip ice cream, okay? Mm -hmm. so, so we want to eat, we don't want the food police, Okay, we don't want that dieting mentality that says, you know, I can only eat this when I'm on a diet or when I'm not on a diet. So it breaks all of these dieting mentality kinds of issues. So, so all foods in healthy moderation and for the right reasons, for physical hunger as opposed to emotional need or in response to chron chronic dieting. So that's probably the most succinct and I've probably done it horrific injustice because it's more nuanced than that mm -hmm. but it is imperative we all are born with the ability to intuitively eat mm -hmm. a, a baby cries when they're hungry and they push the breast away when they're done mm. okay so it is a natural inherent um ability that we all have that gets messed up by dieting it gets messed up and I've got an Italian grandma too, bless her soul, you know, that, 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 you know, you know, feeds you when you need love, right? Like it, it gets messed up by all of these other ways that we use food other than in response to physical cues. Mm -hmm. So we have to get back to that. Yeah. And we can, and when you do, it really helps, um, and this is a qualifier, but it helps to be to, to live within your body's particular um, ideal weight range. And, I, and I'm saying this with qualifiers because there's lots of different qualifiers as far as like if, if you've messed up your metabolism through dieting and everyone's got kind of a different parameter. But it allows your body to kind of go back to where it naturally is meant to be if you were not standing in your own way. Yeah. Yeah. I knew when I asked you this question that I was sending you a curveball and I completely understand that. I am so thankful that you still answered um, because yeah, this, this question is way more um, multifaceted than a 30 second definition could ever provide. However, I wanted someone who was listening that heard those words to at least get a little bit of an idea of what you were talking about to make sure that that was a cohesive thought to them. Um, if you've ever seen Lost or 24, um, the producers of these TV shows, they'll leave you at the end of each show with this cliffhanger. 
of, wait, I, wait, I really want to know what happens. <laughs> and so basically that's exactly what I'm doing here is I wanted to open this can of worms to start the conversation about intuitive eating. And I thought you would be great to do so. Oh, wonderful. 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 There's, um, I'm really excited that you're going to be working on intuitive eating. It sounds like in your podcast and in your work, we do a lot of work with intuitive eating within circle of hope. Um, mm -hmm. that's our, our virtual community that's specific for emotional and binge eaters. Although we do use, um, intuitive eating with anorexia and bulimia and binge eating disorder, but it's, um, there needs to be a lot of resources because it can be a very, hard journey to walk. It, it takes a while to be able to get back to being an intuitive eater, but it is the ultimate um, foundation that's going to help you to be a normal eater for the rest of your life. So it's really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. So Dr. Julie, you were just referencing some of the resources that you have out there. Can you tell people, how can they find you? How can they find these resources that are so dynamic and so helpful to someone struggling with their food or someone just wanting to understand their health a little bit more. You bet. We are really working on putting out some helpful material and it's so wonderful to have um, really the internet now to be able to do it. So um, we have uh, a YouTube channel that's become quite popular. It's called um, Eating Disorder Recovery for a New Beginning. So that's our YouTube channel. There's a lot of videos there. Mm -hmm. We do have our Circle of Hope virtual community. That's for emotional and binge eaters. And I have an Instagram page at, at Dr. Julie T. Anne, A N N E, that is very um, inspirational. And I really like to take people on that page into the deeper work because I do a lot of work on the emotional processes that underlie a healthy self and a healthy non-eating disordered self. I call it the deeper work. And uh, a lot of that is represented um, really across our videos on my uh, Instagram page and within Circle of Hope. Okay. Thank you so much. Yes, all of that will be listed below. Um, I'll make sure it's so easy so you have no excuses not to look into what Dr. Julie is doing um, because she's really changing lives. And I'm so thankful to get a chance to talk to you. And thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Julie. It is my pleasure, Lindsay. Thank you so much for having me and keep up the wonderful work that you're doing as well. Thank you. You too. Okay. Bye-bye.